This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by New Left Review. New Left Review is a bi-monthly journal of ideas covering world politics, the global economy, social movements, theory, history, and culture. In the latest issue, Gray Anderson analyzes NATO's role in institutionalizing American power over Eurasia. Tim Barker and Aaron Beninov debate the global economy. Hito Styrel reflects on art making and machine learning. Ilya Budreitskis reconsiders the legacy of Lenin. And Alberto Toscano considers neoliberalism as a form of civil war. Subscriptions start at only $44 per year, which gets you six issues plus full access to the NLR archive dating back to 1960, featuring landmark texts by Theodore Adorno, John Paul Sartre, Frederick Jameson, and Nancy Fraser, among many others. Subscribe to New Left Review. There's a link in the show notes. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. Sam Altman, chief executive of OpenAI, calls AI, quote, the greatest force for economic empowerment in a lot of people getting rich we have ever seen. But as David Streitfeld wrote in an incisive and very funny New York Times piece, quote, Despite all the talk of AI being an unlimited wealth-generating machine, the people getting rich are pretty much the ones who are already rich. Altman's rosy proclamation that AI will transform humanity should be read alongside the fact that he said in 2016 that he was gathering, quote, guns, gold, potassium iodide, antibiotics, batteries, water, gas masks from the Israeli Defense Force, and a big patch of land in Big Sur I can fly to. In short, the people in control of our technological future do not seem to care about the rest of us very much at all. This episode is my interview with Meredith Whitaker, Ed Ungueso, and Sarah West. We will get into the promise and peril of AI and also just fundamentally what AI is as a technology because it's a term that obscures more than it clarifies. But in significant part, what AI is is the latest big tech attempt to not only protect but also increase the already giant portion of wealth accrued to the high-tech tip-top tier of the global value chain. It is also, in significant part, about their drive for a new Cold War with China and making a lot of money off that war. Today's big tech dominance over AI research echoes the U.S. military's control over science during the Cold War. It is not just an echo, however, but also a continuation of that Cold War system, given that the military and private military contractors are still very much driving scientific research. Big tech's fortunes, of course, were made from the privatization and commercialization of military finance network computational infrastructures, i.e. the Internet. But big tech for a long time had business models that were not largely reliant on military spending. Now that's changing as they join the ranks of those old school contractors, securing a growing share of profits from the military industrial complex that allowed for their rise in the first place. AI is also about the religious-like belief in the so-called singularity, a mythic future where humans and machines merge. As Judith Butler told New York Magazine, the AI fantasy is, quote, governed by the perfectibility thesis. And that's where we see a fascist form of the human. 
AI, then, is caught up in Silicon Valley oligarchs' obsessions with living forever and in remaking the human race through positive eugenics, meaning reproducing a lot of new people that are like them, a project for these super-rich people using technology to try to turn themselves and their descendants into superhumans. AI, like crypto, is about big tech fundamentally changing the subject, redefining our present and future problems, and, in doing so, dictating their solutions. As Angueso writes, quote, Capitalists are desperate to look beyond the impending disintegration of humanity's ecological niche and the unraveling of already threadbare social programs to imagine something more hopeful and profitable. For those eager to usher in a better future, the private financing of technological innovation has long been a source of optimism. Concretely, the bundles of technology that have been dubbed AI are, in the hands of big tech, other capitalists, and the American military-industrial complex, all about exercising forms of social, political, geopolitical, and, critically, economic domination. This was one of the central insights of Chapter 10 of the first volume of Capital, but also the genius of the 19th century Luddite movement. Namely, that the primary impetus to invest in and introduce new technologies on the shop floor under capitalism is a desire to justify paying workers less in the name of making workers more productive. In other words, to bring them under further control and scrutiny, to de-skill and discipline so that they will have less control over the production process. This discussion moves us away from both the AI boosterism and catastrophism and toward this mundane and very old reality. This longer history of computing, technology, and this perennial fight for control over the production process. Marxists once poured over careful analysis of Taylorism, Fordism, and changes to the shape of industrial labor. We should apply a similar analysis to discern these technologies, too. Before we get this conversation started, if you like The Dig, if you depend on us for ruthless criticism of all that exists, then you likely know that we put a ton of work into each episode, every single one of these interviews, and it's listeners like you supporting us at patreon.com slash the dig that makes all that work possible. A contribution of any amount by anyone gets you access to our excellent newsletter. If you're a U.S.-based supporter contributing at least $10 a month, we will send you a book or books in the mail, a dig tote bag, or a dig mug. We can also send ebooks to anyone, pretty much anywhere in the world. If you are a dedicated listener and you can afford a monthly contribution, please make one now. We pay well nothing because we want everyone to be able to listen to every episode, regardless of your ability to pay. Your contributions, those of you who can afford to contribute, that is what makes this model possible. Hit pause, contribute now by clicking on the link in the show notes. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash the dig. Thanks. And here's Meredith Whitaker, Ed Ungueso, and Sarah West. Meredith Whitaker is a scholar and longtime tech worker whose work examines the political economy and social implications of computational technology and the industry that controls it. Edward Ungueso Jr. is a freelance writer based in Brooklyn who covers labor, finance, and technology. He's the co-host of This Machine Kills, a podcast about the political economy of technological innovation. Sarah Myers-West is the managing director of the AI Now Institute and the author of the forthcoming book, Tracing Code, which examines the origins of commercial surveillance. Mary. 
Meredith Whitaker, Ed Angueso, and Sarah West. Welcome to The Dig. Thank you so much. It's really wonderful to be here, Daniel. Yeah, thanks for having us on. This is an interview about AI, but I should start by asking what is artificial intelligence? Meredith, you write that over the past decade, quote, tech companies quickly rebranded machine learning and other data-dependent approaches as AI, framing them as the product of breakthrough scientific innovation. When we call this, this bundle of machine learning technology AI, is the simple use of that term doing mystifying ideological work that we need to pick apart? What, what are the motivations behind this rebrand? What, what, in other words, do they mean to convey with AI? And what was the problem with that earlier machine learning brand? So maybe I'll kick it off and then pass it along. And I think this is a this is the fundamental question. We could probably spend two or three hours just unpacking this history and how this term has drifted across you know, different varieties of technical modality to describe more of an intention than a sort of unified set of technical practices. So as good readers of history go back to 1956 and even actually before that, when the men whom we credit as, or were, whom we're instructed to credit as the fathers of AI rallied under this term. And John McCarthy, who was a cognitive and computer scientist, was the person who invented this term. And why did he invent this term? Well, one of the reasons is he needed a term that was attractive to funders, exciting, um, and could get them to fund a summer research program where he was going to, you know, do some work in a couple, you know, I think with eight weeks with some other guys, Marvin Minsky, Claude Shannon, kind of the, the forefathers to make in machines that think. And so he had to pick a term that would get the money. And anyone in academia is really sympathetic to this. You need a flashy term that you can also claim that like gives you some turf. And he picked this term because he didn't want to be associated with Norbert Wiener under whose term cybernetics, the field was organized at that time. So what are we looking at? We're looking at a need for funding and we're looking at the petty academic beef and turf claiming, really familiar modalities to many people. Um, so, you know, we fast forward through, you know, we call them winters and, you know, AI summers and winters, right? But it's basically like when funders were interested in funding AI and when they were not, and a winter is when they are not. And over the years, there have been a number of very different technical approaches that have been sort of clustered under this neologism. So, you know, okay, that's a that's a great history, but why now is the question we can then focus on. You know, why in, you know, it was the early 2010s, did we see a sudden resurgence in interest of AI after, you know, the artificial intelligence or machine learning or these sort of subfields clustered under these categories had been effectively backwaters in computer science, right? Like these guys didn't even have their own lab. They certainly weren't getting big NSF grants. This was, you know, a marginal field. You know, their their conferences happened at like Hilton's in San Diego with like a hundred people, right? And now you're looking at fifteen thousand, a hundred thousand, right? You know, a huge you know step function in in interest. Uh, you know, starting around the 2010s. And if fast forward, and what we're looking at around there is not a change in the fundamental algorithms or approaches to building AI. So what happened in the 2010s was not that, you know, a bunch of geniuses came up and we're fine, you know, came up with an idea and we're like, now we have solved it. We're moving AI forward. 
our techniques are newly relevant because there's been a breakthrough in you know innovative approaches the techniques that were being used in the early 2010s were actually from the late 80s but what happened was you had due to the surveillance business model which sort of grew through the 90s and incentivized you know these you know, large, you know, these tech companies to create large infrastructures. So a lot of computational power, these data centers that span the globe and enable, you know, high availability network computational tech and the, you know, the business model of collecting a huge amount of data that you can then effectively sell sort of, you know, access and profiles to advertisers. It was those two ingredients that changed around the early 2010s, right at the time when the big, you know, winners of the surveillance business model that, you know, the Googles, the Facebooks, the Amazons, the Microsofts were kind of consolidating their power and, you know, their kind of monopoly position. So the ingredients that were kind of new at that time were the massive amounts of surveillance data available to these companies and the massive amounts of compute, which through a kind of logic of brute force were able to make old techniques from the 80s do new things. And of course, because you're talking about you know commercial technologies sold by you know, corporations that have a you know the classic profit and growth interest, a lot of other things began to kind of cluster under this category of AI because who actually knows what it is if it's hidden behind corporate secrecy and obscure technical jargon? So you had this you know marketing bonanza where you know you would have a spreadsheet formula on the back end that was sold as AI on the front end. You would have you know various old statistical techniques powering systems that claimed to be able to make intelligent human determinations in domains where you know these tech companies were trying to break into the market um, that were actually not doing anything new or exciting but had a, a newly exciting sort of mythologized, marketing pitch uh, that was that was propelling them forward and and compelling a I would say a, a guileless public to sort of trust these systems in new and I would say dangerous ways. Yeah, Sarah, Ed. I mean I think one of the things that really strikes me is, you know, what happens once this slippage around AI moves through the world. And what we're seeing unfold in front of us right now as a product of that history that Mare has really neatly painted before us is that, you know, the sign of artificial intelligence can get laden with all kinds of capabilities and functionalities and a sense of like inevitability um, that belie the material infrastructure that underpins artificial intelligence, that belie the business model that underpins, you know, the proliferation of artificial intelligence. So we start to get rhetoric around AI that associates it with progress, that associates it with, you know, securitization and militarization. And, and that's kind of the space that we're now finding ourselves within. And, and it's deeply concerning because the material infrastructure underpinning AI um, as it currently exists is very much entrenching the interests of a few tech companies um, at the cost of all of these kinds of public harms that, you know, we were talking about for the past decade, you know, ramping up patterns of inequality, you know, the deployment of AI for purposes of austerity, although it's sort of like marketed under, you know, for, for different reasons, you know, we're, we're now in a moment where 
policymakers are considering different modes of intervention around AI, but without any sort of attachment to the concrete realities and incentive structures that are shaping, you know, the way these systems are actually being deployed in the world. Ed? Really important here, you know, you know, both uh, Meredith and, and Sarah have lined out and gone into detail about how the corporations have, you know, every interest in presenting a certain image of artificial intelligence and, you know, that this protects the power that they, they enjoy, the monopolies that they're trying to cultivate, um, the sort of products that they're, they're trying to put out, as well as the, the path of technological development that they're trying to narrowly confine a lot of consumer products and business-to-business products and, you know, military, offer, uh, military services and offerings uh, to along lines that are profitable for them. And I think it's, it's like, you know, we cannot stress enough how much of a victory they have had. Like in most of the discussions that we have when we're talking about artificial intelligence, we're talking about things as if they are able to think, as if they have interior states, as if they can predict or judge. And, you know, we have not, we don't understand how human interiority is constructed, <laughs> let alone how to replicate it, let alone if you could even prove, you know, and that, that in of itself is like even a further down debate. Like, let's say if we, you know, even if something, you know, to entertain the AI arguments about saying, well, you know, in the far flung future, we'd be able to produce something and might be able to be sentient. We, we still also don't understand enough about intelligence to be able to prove it, right? So we're so far removed from that. We're at a point where what we do have is, you know, you take large amounts of, of data and, and, and create predictive models and do statistical analysis to have something that imitates and plays the imitation game really well with human beings, right? And is able to ape around as if it ape around or be, you know, tugged in ways that, you know, still have the illusion of uh, agency, right? But, but again, like I was talking about, even in that description, it still like ends up being boxed in by metaphors in ways that we talk about it as if there is some sort of interiority or independence going on, right? Um, and it is, I think that's like one of the biggest roadblocks and victories on their part that is going to be uh, you know, incredibly hard to root out, right? How do we communicate that these things are clearly statistical, mathematical uh, constructions and phenomena that are not in any way, shape, or form uh, intelligent? And that the gulf between these narrow applications of these models, which may have some practical value to something that is actually intelligent is such a huge gulf and that because of that there's been a lot of bullshit and there's been a lot of lying and there's been a lot of deceit that's taken advantage of that because we've for like you know 40 50 60 70 years been imagining what the world might look like if we did have these agents or artificially intelligent actors present right um but we haven't also been having larger deeper thoughts about you know, the way in which we use our language, what the implications and the possibilities are. Um, and instead, it's largely being, you know, the conversation has been steered, taken over and controlled by people who have every interest to ensure that the resources, the internal debates, uh, the assessments of capabilities, the, re the resources to even push or, you know, check work, um, infrastructure is in their hands and their hands alone so that they can guide and the guided the path of development, guide the shape of the public's imagination, guide the curiosity that people might have, and make it nearly impossible for you know real criticism to happen in in a way that's one a 
a disservice because all we get is profit-driven, you know, developments that are often used for ends that, you know, are practical again, but like, you know, would be used for maybe helping accelerate the privatization of some municipal service or being used to help provide more efficient killing machines or used to provide, you know, more, uh, more expansive surveillance networks, more lethal borders, um, but also robbing us of actual, like, infrastructure and resources invested in actually understanding what intelligence might look like and how human intelligence works and operates and how it might be modeled or what things are possible and not possible, right? I feel that's also another, you know, huge miss, right? In that, you know, we get this profit-driven surveillance tech, murder tech, a lot of technology that is driven towards how do we dispossess? How do we extract? How do we kill? How do we anticipate? How do we surveil? How do we uh, buttress and, you know, and reinforce social control? And a lot of energy loss and how do we actually get a better understanding of intelligence, what's capable, what it's capable of, what are, what is realistically something that we're able to build and what ways can we use these things that we're calling AI, not to replace human labor, not to displace people, not to kill people, not to surveil, not to corral, but, you know, to, you know, what some of the, I think in some of their most like ecstatic moments or when they're really trying to sell it, right? The venture capitalists and some of the entrepreneurs will talk about how do we augment human potential and capacity, right? How do we use this AI to, to make a better world, right? But when we sit back and look at what they're offering, that's not in, you know, actually what they're offering. But we can't even really have that discussion because all the discussions are really just code for how do we generate more profit, right? How do we improve productivity and not any other concern that we might have one, you know, if, again, if these AI systems are even possible to build in the first place, and two, like, what would we want them to be used for if we can and do want to pursue their creation? Breaking out the term artificial intelligence into its two component words, um, something that you touched on there, Ed, that I want to want to ask you all about is what what sort of claims are being made by proponents about about the so-called intelligence of AI. Linguist Emily Bender has argued at length that there's this huge misunderstanding at work that ChatGPT's capacity to mimic human communication is evidence that it has some form of human-like intelligence. And so is there is there some sort of sleight of hand here going on in terms of humans feeling this very human tendency, something anthropologists have have long documented to to impute human human-like intentionality and agency to to phenomena that we find meaningful? Yeah. I mean, we name our cars, right? <laughs> <laughs> we all want to be heard. We all want to be loved. We want to be talking to people. We want to be in community. Like, you know, we look up and the face we see is a parent or guardian as we're born, right? I think, you know, I am, this is not my lane professionally. I don't, you know, I'm not a child development specialist. I'm not a psychologist. I haven't, you know, dug deep into this, but I, you know, I have, studied Emily's work. And I see a lot of this just in the, you know, as you said, sleight of hand vis-a-vis how, how our criteria is established and sometimes how our criteria gets almost sort of degraded such that we can justify these claims. So if you look at you know, one, you know, the way that AI systems are evaluated, right? When you hear, you know, you read Wired or you see, you know, some other headline about, you know, GPT past, you know, is is now better than humans at S, X task or AI superseded humans at, you know, I'm blanking on some 
anodyne example, but there are millions of these that make claims about not only you know implicit intelligence of these systems, but that these systems are actually better than humans at this. And and then you dig it and you're like, oh my God, okay, better than humans at what? What in specifically was the evaluation criteria? And you will digging through sort of a, a rabbit hole of open tabs until you get to an evaluation data set in which, you know, it's a, an AI system is judged on its ability to say, you know, name, you know, map the correct label to an image. And that is considered sort of, you know, image understanding or its, its ability to sort of get the right answer on a test that has sort of, you know, rote answers. And you realize that these criteria as, you know, scholars like Deb Raji and Alex Hanna and others have, have spent, you know, have, have written about it length, the benchmarks by which we are measuring what AI systems do and how they do it are extremely narrow. These are effectively, in most cases, kind of tinker toy assessments that allowed academic models to compare themselves to each other. And of course, you need to be able to sort of validate your work against others in your field if you're going to make you know, claims about things like progress, if you're going to make claims about innovation, if you're going to be able to sort of organize a field of study, if you're going to be able to get tenure or money for your lab. So a lot of these benchmarks evolved in an academic capacity as basically a ruler that would let scholars sort of measure each other's work against each other. And then, you know, through that slippage around the sort of, you know, 2010 is the rough, you know, kind of marker there when these, you know, marginal academic fields of study suddenly were sort of lifted up by a, a rabid tech industry to the sort of you know, core importance to the future of the world and its technology, you know, these benchmarks came with them. And we have sort of slipped into, uh, or we, the, you know, the non-royal we, the plebeian we, <laughs> have slipped into a pattern of being comfortable making claims about intelligence or capability, which when you dig into them are simply the sort of capacity of a model, you know, trained with a certain algorithm to, you know, do certain things against a very, very narrow criteria. Ed? Like you're talking about, you know, breaking up those, those two parts is really important, right? Because, you know, also at the end of the day, the artificial intelligence, you know, what kind of intelligence are you constructing? It's largely, right, these devices, there are a lot of models that, you know, Meredith has written about this, Sarah's written about this, about how the sort of consolidation of uh, resources and infrastructure, you know, has benefited greatly by interest that the U.S. military has had this and guiding the development of the de of uh, artificial intelligence or the industry and the interest in what is artificial intelligence has largely been like you know what kind of things can we construct that might be able to boost the, our ability to do surveillance what tools can we use to boost our ability to kill or project power or, or reduce people to units that might be better uh anticipable or calculable right that artifice, uh, when we when when there's this effort by corporations to present artificial intelligence as something that we're marching towards, as you know, this is the end of history by obscuring a lot of those origins, by obscuring that the artificial uh, position of of attempts to create these intelligent systems or supposedly intelligent systems is largely in ways that are surveillant and militarized and 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 and, and all about you know squeezing people, corralling people. It obscures, I think, you know, what Meredith was just talking about, how deeply narrow it is. And I think also how most people, if they really, you know, 
spend any time or we're able we're allowed to basically spend time looking at it assessing it thinking about like okay if i were to sit down in my life and think about if we're going to have artificial systems structuring it and intermediating it what kind of systems would i like to have they would not consent to these sorts of things and they would reject them wholesalely but if you present it as we are marching along don't pay any attention to the artificers or the people who are actively investing resources into it they're just digging towards uh they're just digging through the shit so that we can find the golden nuggets and the golden nuggets will keep leading us to this end point it's not that they're steering and directing and guiding and limiting and blinding people to other paths and avenues because it's inevitable it's it's inevitable that they're just uh helping realize something that always already was destined to to emerge yeah we're just a manitizing eschaton we're just giving birth to god you know we're not really doing anything (laughs) (laughs) we're just here along for the ride right and Anyone who tries to get in the way of it, anyone asks questions about it, anyone asks why, you know, all the things that we keep finding in the pile of shit look like guns or cameras that, you know, these are <laughs> Luddites and these are, these are people who are getting in the way of progress, right? Um, and that is, I think, also like one of the, you know, that's one of the worst parts, you know, on top of a lot of the applications, right? You know, zoom back and you, you know, you ask like what some of these people, what some of the early computer scientists were trying to do. And they're saying like, yeah, maybe we might have some computational system that might be able to imitate humans like Alan Turing. Right. But what do we what should we use that for? That question, we don't get any part in that to use the plebeian we again. Right. We don't no one except except these people who have decided, you know, we are going to largely use them for killing machines and, and control systems are directing Something that whether or not people want it to or not will structure a lot of people's lives and will structure their lives not because it's an intelligent system and not because it's actually you know, has interior states and not because it's actually you know, able to supersede human ability in a real general sense, but because there are billions and billions of dollars being directed at these things and they're going to be applied in this or that way, right? And that's really the real thing that I think also is hard to, that's important to parse, right? By pushing this narrative of inevitability, by obscuring the artificial element of it, by obscuring that it's not really intelligent, you're able to just say like the the outcomes that you might be uncomfortable with, the anxieties that you have about these things, the consequences that you're seeing and you're not liking, you know, you just have to get with that because that's, there's no other path forward, right? We are just recreating human intelligence. This is just a reflection of what humans would do if we were a little bit more intelligent it's a reflection of our system and you also shouldn't question you know why our system has similar outcomes if ai were involved right things that we are generating that a lot of money and power is put behind are natural and we're just discovering them you shouldn't interfere and you shouldn't undermine sarah when you look under the hood at a lot of these systems it is a very messy picture mayor talked a little bit about benchmarking processes, but, and a lot of the systems that are out in commercial use are not going through any kind of like meaningful validation or testing. Um, They're just kind of like releasing them out into the wild and then hoping that, you know, as the public plays around with these systems, they'll find the bugs and they'll, you know, and the bugs coming in the form of like hate speech or, um, you know, really things that are exhibit safety concerns, and then they'll kind of like fix them, fix them in the edit. So I think like that, that dynamic is quite toxic and it raises questions about the underlying 
power that the companies deploying these systems have that they feel impunity to experiment in ways that are so detrimental to the broad public, you know, and, and they don't need to, you know, pass, you know, basic level tests of scrutiny. Hundreds of AI executives, engineers, and researchers recently signed a statement warning, quote, mitigating the risk of extinction from AI should be a global priority alongside other societal scale risks, such as pandemics and nuclear war. Climate change, interestingly, not in that list. We're hearing a lot of apocalyptic hyperbole from the, from the very same people who are claiming that AI is the future and ine- the inevitable future and who are, as you all have laid out, in fact, the ones actively making that future and also making a ton of money from that future, or at least the idea of that future. What What is going on? Is this just a distraction from the more mundane threats that big tech already poses to humanity? Is it a, is it a flashy promotion scheme or, or is something else and maybe weirder at work, something that gets at the tech industry's own own self-conception. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I mean, part of it is, you know, this is these are arsonists selling fire insurance, right? These are people who like, like <laughs> they really, you know, Meredith has talked a lot recently about this. Like, if these people really wanted to, you know, they could pause their own research, right? And instead, what they are doing is they are begging for regulations that just so coincidentally happen to privilege them as incumbents and protect their ability to continue doing the research and providing the products for you know specific entities or corporations or institutions um, while locking out any possible competitors, right? And the fight ending up over who's going to control most of the infrastructure. But I think all of this is like also the people the the people are crowing the loudest are also people who you know if you step back and you say okay what are some of the risks that humanity faces like concrete risks on the immediacy you know there's there's risk of climate change right there's a risk also coming out of climate change of mass amounts of people being forced out of their uh, you know where they live and you know mass migrations because of climate change there's also risk of you know conflicts suddenly breaking out and um, and entering into hot conflicts right either because of an accidental nuclear um, launch or either because of escalation that comes from systems that might, you know, be misinterpreted or have runaway consequences. Uh, there's, you know, a lot of risks that when you step back and you look, okay, well, you know, what are some of the things we can mitigate and who are some of the people that are feeding the risk? A lot of them are like, you know, some of these companies that are also screaming about the risk of AI, right? I mean, if, you know, who are the people that are making, you know, migrant crises work? It's worse. It's people who are selling, you know, artificial, and the, the systems are calling AI systems, right? That are uh, making it easier for firms to terrorize migrant communities and, and also try to create deportation terror machines, right? Uh, it's people who are trying to offer cloud computing services to uh, oil corp- uh, companies so that they can better find where to extract fossil fuels and get more of them out before their assets are left stranded or before there ends up being some global, you know, real global action on trying to curtail fossil fuel production, right? It's places that are offering weapons systems and trying to offer ways for drones to kill, like, you know, a few less civilians or to man or to have, you know, more automated or algorithmic management of of, uh, weapon systems or war machines, right? You know, these are people who are contributing greatly to the risk of crisis and conflict and other spheres of our world, uh, crowing about something that they stand to make a lot of money on and that they're realizing there's a possibility for 
government action and other corporate action to curtail the possibility of those, you know, untold profits if they're able to successfully pitch AI with a marketing strategy that is both, this is so scary, buy more while you can, uh, and this is so scary, block anyone else from making it and make us your preferred vendor, right? And so it's, it's really like the industry is the real threat here. You know, the industry is where a lot of these threats and risk are coming from, the various uh, dynamics and relationships and arrangements that drive what they produce, what they develop, what they are interested in and what they pursue and how they do it, are what are going to keep generating from them more products and more services that threaten human livelihood. It's not going to be the AI systems itself. It's, you know, the people who are sitting down building this, that, and other products that are right now you know, making the world a worse place. I completely co-sign what Ed said. And I think just stepping back and looking at a recent history, and this is something that I know, you know, Sarah and I worked together and sort of went through this period as folks who were focusing on AI, focusing on the discursive deployment of this term artificial intelligence and looking particularly at the corporate consolidation of power around these systems. So what we saw was again early 2010s around 2012 there were there were events that were heralded as ai breakthroughs which were effectively again the product of this sort of you know being able to scale the data and scale the compute to make old techniques do new things and that led to this sort of first feeding frenzy and ai hype so around like 2014 2015 it was you know it was a you know, I think a little quieter, but for people in the tech industry or focused on, you know, these broader issues, it was certainly kind of a riotous, you know, new focus on AI. Everyone inside Google, where I was working at that time, you know, needed to somehow bolt machine learning or, you know, some AI variant onto their product to get, you know, promotion. There was a, a real sort of rallying around this. And similar narratives around super intelligence, around these sort of baseless inflated claims about the capabilities for these systems that were to some extent beat back by you know, critical scholarship and a focus on you know, the material reality of these systems and, and what have you. Um, and so for the past decade or more, there has actually been a fair amount of focus on regulation, on how do we grapple with these systems? How do we grapple with the fact that at the moment, there are only a handful of corporations in the world based in China and the U.S. who have the capabilities to develop these large-scale models like GPT uh, that are now being deployed through you know, variegated markets to make decisions and predictions that are affecting people's lives, often invisibly, right? Like, what do we do about this? So there are long-standing policy processes underway. And in fact, you know, Europe just passed, passed the AI Act. So you know, what is happening now that we're seeing this sort of, again, like you know, the, the sort of AI-thology on steroids? Well, you know, ChatGPT dropped in January. And I do think through this sort of you know, ability to let people experience an interface and the you know, simulation of a sentient interlocutor and all of the things that we discussed and that Emily Bender has researched, there was a kind of renewed opportunity for hype that that presented. And I think there was a tactical move, at least on the part of some of the people who are kind of elevating this perspective, which is, you know, there is regulation that is going to happen. And 
you know, we want that regulation to be favorable, as Ed said, to entrench our position. So what we need to do is very quickly reframe the problem. And the problem is no longer, you know, the fact that these systems work for some to consolidate power while they are used on others in ways that are exploitative or you know, biased or extractive or what have you. The problem is not that they replicate histories of social inequality and often deepen these, you know, via the training data and via the way that they're deployed. The problem is not the consolidation of unaccountable power in the hands of a few surveillance corporations. The problem is that 50 years from now, these machines might come alive. And we're going to have to deal with that, right? So, you know, if you frame the problem in kind of classic policy tactician, you know, uh, uh, know, as as a kind of classic move to try to capture a policy process, you also get to frame the solution. So, you you have companies like Microsoft, which you know we we should be referring to Microsoft instead of OpenAI because Microsoft is a subsidiary of OpenAI, and that's that is the relationship there. But Microsoft is very intent on you know their business is going to be selling access to ai apis through their cloud services azure and that's you know that's you know their first contract was like you know bain capital and coca cola um, for you know licensing gpt and you know very distinct from their you know humanity saving or humanity damning kind of rhetoric on the marketing side but what they want is to leave that lane open they want to be able to sell as many of those contracts get as much money and sort of you know probably you know aiming for large military contracts all of that and they want to stay away from you know regulation that touches those material conditions so you know i think this is an incredibly convenient narrative which both attributes to them the capability of creating god and you know reframes the problem of something that is sort of both exciting like catnip for elder male politicians who love to think about sort of a fantasy cold war scenario and distracts from you know what's really happening, giving them an opportunity to capture a pushback on that process. And I'd actually love to hear from Sarah around some of the EU lobbying that we've seen, which I think just you know, drives this point home. Oh my gosh, yeah. I mean, there was such a significant uptick of corporate lobbying that took place around the AI Act. And to Mayor's point, you know, the the reframing around like existential risk, these like potential harms far out in the, into the future also, you know, sets up, you know, a Microsoft vice president on a panel saying, well, we don't have evidence of the harms. We don't have evidence of the, whether they've occurred. So like maybe we don't need regulatory intervention, you know, belying the decades worth of evidence that you know, folks across the research community and, you know, organizers and, you know, workers have been amassing for years and years and years of the ways that the deployment of AI is impacting their lives in the here and now, like in the, you know, in the immediate surroundings around us. But I mean, in, in the AI Act, you have this this really odd positioning where companies like Microsoft, like OpenAI are both saying, you know, we welcome regulation, but then as soon as you get down into the details, they back way off. And there was a, an article in Time, I think yesterday, um, that spoke to OpenAI's lobbying behind the scenes to effectively water down the provisions of the AI Act, even as it was saying regulation was badly needed. Um, so there's just kind of this this ratcheting back and forth on industry positions exactly as they're trying to almost like slalom around 
what kinds of interventions are going to, you know, ultimately impact their business model. And part of why this is taking place is because there are some regulators right now who might intervene. Like we're we're in a moment where there are people who are in enforcement agencies who, you know, unlike the past couple of decades have like largely been very hands-off with tech companies. There's now, you know, so, like their their foot is a little bit on the gas pedal and just that little bit of pressure is causing this, you know, onslaught of of corporate funding that's trying to lobby um to shape the trajectory of of regulatory intervention and it is exactly because regulatory friction it sort of like takes all of the wind out of arguments that AI is inevitable that there is, you know, an inertia or this like inevitable progress to AI because regulatory friction actually can very much shape the incentive structures and the like the, you know, capacities of AI systems as they're, you know, being deployed out in the world. Is part of what's happening that the noise, the the sound and fury, the self-promotion, all of the apocalyptic worrying, is it a sort of side effect or knock-on effect of this earlier, very recent moment of tech optimism about the metaverse suddenly just fading and with it fading, all of that hype and funding now just moving to AI? I just follow this from a sort of, you know, pedestrian generalist reading the newspaper way, but it seems like the metaverse just became this enormous next big thing that will change everything. Over the past year and a half or two, it was, I think, late 2021 that Facebook became meta and already everything. It's so quickly deflated. Is a is AI really in part a financial psychological technology in a sense, something that that can they hope at least sustain rising market valuations that the industry depends upon, priming priming the investment pumps in a moment when when lowest interest rates have caused this caused this huge economic crunch across Silicon Valley? I'm gonna offer a quick steaming hot heterodox take on that. I don't think the metaverse was ever very serious. I saw the metaverse announced in a pretty haphazard way with almost no technological development actually done at exactly the time when Facebook was like, they were scrambling to try to avoid antitrust scrutiny. They were implicated in genocide, like (laughs) saying the name Facebook had to be followed by vomiting or you weren't, you know, um, (laughs) participating in social life correctly. Like, you know, they have no morally redeeming story about themselves. And I, you know, I saw the metaverse as a very expensive distraction. Um, and, you know, of course, they I mean, the it, avatars right? didn't have legs. That that was that was that was, was a real tell. Cool. <laughs> but, you know, I think I would I would love to hear from Ed on this, too, because I do think, you know, there's there's a way that venture capital investment as a form requires hype and doesn't care if that hype is real or not. You know, you hype it until the acquisition or the IPO, and then you cash out, right? There's, you know, Theranos got caught, but most of them, you know, work on that premise. And then, you you know, of course, you had the crypto hype where just all, you know, I won't go into detail, but again, similar, just like, you know, drafting on wind with no substance. And what I'm not saying is that the metaverse and, you know, crypto as in securities and AI are the same things fundamentally. I think AI actually has, you know, in a very problematic way, a bit more staying power. It is a sort of longer history and you can conjure a lot more by simply slapping a label on any old thing and sort of attributing to it these sort of magical properties. What I do think is that we're seeing that the, you know, the hype cycle follows a similar pattern, 
because that you know hype cycle is almost conjured into being as a necessity for the investor class and the sort of financial engine of Silicon Valley. So I I do think you know what we're talking about when we talk about AI is like simply brute forcing compute and data. There are shifts in techniques, but not meaningful shifts. It's just like more and more data, more 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 data. Okay, more 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 data and compute. And we you know we got a corner of the market on Nvidia GPUs because we need to be the ones who have that. But again, what we're seeing is a sort of scaling up of the requirements for concentrated corporate technology. Um, not innovation. And so, you know, why now and, you know, how this hype cycle sort of kicked off, um, I think has a lot to do with the financial instruments that govern, you know, computational tech than with, you know, as much to do with that as, as anything else. I think Facebook is really actually a really great example of, of thinking through something like this, right? Facebook is widely used in the United States and across the entire world. It offers a service that, also has other components uh, that it's facing antitrust scrutiny for, right? WhatsApp, Instagram, that also have huge um, use out overseas as well. It has, um, it has at various times attempted to get into other lines of service that co- kind of pull in more and more of people's daily life and communication, right? So uh, attempts to either offer uh, transfers or a financial services platform on top of its communications and, of course, um, on top of its um, advertising platform, right? And most of these have, in one way or another, not yielded the uh, gush of profits that they've been hoping for, despite the money that have been poured into. And that has been the kind of more reliable predictor of when Facebook is going to look at a new business line, right? Advertising seems to be going through some trouble. Uh, advertising profits seem to be you know, slowly declining or not growing as much as before. We're going to spend $100 billion on the metaverse. We weren't able to launch our own cryptocurrency coin that was uh, going to be used as an attempt to get people to be trading US, do- well, uh, US dollars after they traded into our coin uh, on our platform and do more purchases and grow commerce on it and also use this to further generate and grow advertiser revenue. You know, we'll find some other business line. Maybe we'll get into wearables. Maybe we'll get into augmented reality or virtual reality, right? There is always a constant search for more, even when what you have is clearly a juggernaut, right? This is a, co- a company that, when it was growing less than the previous quarter, right, it, it had shaped, it had not grown, it had not gained, you know, like $10 billion in additional revenue in the previous quarter at one point, I think it was last year, and saw a huge tank in its um, market capitalization, right? There was, a, there, was a, there was a moment last year when it lost about $800 billion in market capitalization because advertiser profits were not growing consistently or larger than the previous quarters, uh, each quarter throughout that year, right? But this is still a company that commands billions of eyeballs. This is a company that still pulls in hundreds of billions of dollars, right? All that has really changed is people have to mark down estimate of the return by a few percentage points here, right? And I think that's, you know, those few percentage points can then be used to transform this narrative about, uh, well, Facebook is no longer able to command uh, the imaginations of people or it's not able to offer a product that will uh, that will revolutionize how we communicate and socialize with one another but at the end of the day what it really is is like facebook is an advertising platform that is trying to figure out more products that will generate revenues through that and sometimes that's using them for surveillance sometimes that's using them for second life sometimes that's using them for cryptocurrency 
And it has its failure to do that is not going to stop it from doing it. And it will get more frenzied and desperate about it. It will find ways to fight regulators on it. It will find a way to corral or find regulatory loopholes in other countries where it can experiment with it. It can find it will find other hype cycles to pull in, like it did with cryptocurrency, like it's doing with virtual reality, like it's doing with artificial intelligence, right? Regardless of not regardless of whether there's a, the actual there there. And I think that is general function of how a lot of the money sloshing around in the valley was operating when there were low interest rates, when there was a lot of foreign capital coming in from Japan through SoftBank, through Saudi Arabia and its uh, Gulf city states and protectorates, and also through other countries throughout the, you know, the world, you know, authoritarian regimes that are looking to export or you know, trying to find a place to slosh around their money, places that are also trying to replicate their own Silicon Valley, right? These attempts to build other homes for capital to come and sink and, and soak up and burn, as well as places where people to you know get some of that capital or to offer some some bullshit tech right and to help sustain the the hype cycle. You know this is I think a, a really important and underrated feature of Silicon Valley that a lot of a lot of the development, a lot of the push, a lot of the hype is also self interested because people do understand part of what you have to do to keep the party going is to buy in right. Investors will buy into rounds with, uh, or throw as much money as possible at rounds to try to inflate the valuation and also try to get a better deal. They'll uh, try to entice other people to get into, you know, darlings in their portfolios. They'll try to get into, you know, deals with charismatic and and young entrepreneurs, whether or not they actually have anything right behind them. They'll, they'll invest in friends. They'll invest in friends of friends. They they'll keep the money within a tight insular network, and get it outside of the tight insular network when it will make everyone in the tight insular network richer or when it will sustain the party that everyone in that tight network relies upon, right? And that ends up being, you know, the desire for profit, the desire to keep enriching and passing around lottery tickets between a narrow group of venture capitalists, this desire to try to find something that might also be so stupendous that you might get a real profit from it, drive a lot of these hype cycles more than an actual development in the technology that might be breakthrough, which we haven't been seeing, right? We haven't been seeing, you know, what is it, 10, 15 years yet uh, since the advent of uh, a cryptocurrency. We haven't really seen a te- like, you know, uh, any of these cryptocurrency exchanges or and a lot of these uh, applications and services provide uses outside of high, heavily financialized ones. Outside of remittances, outside of, of financial tr- uh, services, outside of, in one way or another, grasping onto the speculative value of the underlying coin onto, onto a good or service. Even though we know that they're possible and that there are some, you know, some possible uses or applications of blockchain technology that might be not interesting if you take away the speculative asset or sp- take away the speculative value. But it's revealing that none of those have really come about. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, um, Similarly with augmented and virtual reality, right? Maybe you could, if you twisted my arm, I could think of a way that it would be useful or interesting outside of a second life or outside of the persistent ads that follow you around, right? Um, surveilling workers. Right, yeah, surveilling workers. Yeah, they're, they're also in these cases- there Surveilling are people uses, in their cars. You know, it, for, for these people, there are a lot of, those are really good uses, right? If you want to figure out exactly what your work's doing, maybe you want to crush union organizing, maybe you want to come up with a bullshit reason to, to help uh, furnish uh, layoffs that you're going to be doing. Those are great things to do as well. 
uh, or maybe you're trying to figure out where it came from, so on and so forth, right? And for artificial intelligence, there's a lot of like great use cases for uh, people who are interested in, you know, similarly trying to generate vibe, trying to generate profits, trying to extract the money, but not actually build something uh, which has some social utility that is lacking in the crypto, that's lacking in the meta, that's lacking in so much of what venture capitalists put their money behind in the first place. Doesn't have to work as advertised to work as intended when we understand intended as sort of you know, continuing to increase profit and growth. Uh, Sarah, anything to add? I think that that's, that's absolutely the case. And I think, you know, one of the things that we see happen frequently within the AI industry too, is that, you know, a thing, a, a thing might be developed for one purpose and then put to a completely different purpose than is intended, um, that there's these secondary use cases. And often it's that like move to the secondary use case where you see a lot of like slippage in the actual functioning of the system where it starts to sort of float in a in a way where like it it works as intended but it doesn't work and like i can think of so many examples of this you know one is this company that mayor and i spent a lot of time looking at back in like 2018 2019 called affectiva which emerged out of work at the mit media lab to try and help people who are on the like this is this is the stated purpose they were trying to develop a smile detector for people who have difficulty you know reading the emotional state of other people so i mean like there's there's no support or evidence that says you know a computer vision systems like measurement of the micro movements in your facial muscles one can like effectively measure a smile and then two that that smile like imputing of a smile is a meaningful read of your inner emotional state. Like this is all pseudoscience, but it doesn't have, like people will still believe it. And so they, they developed this system ostensibly for this use and then, you know, start trying to find a business model um, on which this system can be supported. And that's, you know, the, the emotion recognition space trying to figure out additional use cases for facial recognition as soon as facial recognition is in wide systemic deployment. So how can we make more money off of facial recognition? Let's layer on additional APIs. Let's layer on smile detectors and emotion recognition systems. And then cut to Amazon has its facial recognition API called recognition. And they start selling it like, oh, now in addition to the other five emotions that we can recognize, let's add on fear. And they had this like press release where they were like, Amazon recognition now includes fear. Um, and it was just this really bizarre moment where you see this like slippage of the original intended use case with all of its flaws getting deepened and deepened and deepened in its deployment in ways that can cause like widespread and significant harm. You know, the recognition API is used in security cameras. It's used in, you know, by by police forces. Um, it's used in ways that, you know, disproportionately are going to harm communities of, of color. And the like the the errors in the system kind of track across so many different layers and, and lead to, you know, things that actually can meaningfully harm people's lives. I, I see no reason why state authorities should not be informed if, you know, their subjects are unhappy or, or afraid and, you know, identifying those individuals and following up with them. Or if, you know, some 
iCaliper's system has deemed them afraid. Because you know, how are these systems built? Well, there's low paid workers who label pictures of people based on their hunch about what that picture means about that person's interior state. So this is, you know, again, this is straight repackaging race science and physiognomy in you know computational clothing. But I think, yes, this is pseudoscience. Yes, this is wild. Yes, this is a multi-billion dollar industry projected to grow. And I think something really important here is that what this system is doing at a structural level is vesting in a handful of technology companies and the institutions, governments, whoever is sort of licensing this tech. So your employer, the police, your school district, the right and the authority to determine your interior state, your character, your thoughts, your feelings with more purported validity than you have. So this is, I think there is, this is one of the more obviously problematic uses of this technology, but you sort of map on who gets to use these systems. You know, based on the business model, our understanding of how much these systems cost and the goals that these companies sort of have vis-a-vis -vis revenue and, and growth, we know who's going to use them. Right. It's not everyday people like plucking the AI apple off the tree equally and you know thinking of creative uses. This is, you know, this is bosses. This is the studios, you know, using these on the writers. This is, you know, you know, Disney using it on its, you know, theme park attendants, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then in the you know, process of using this, what we're doing is, you know, secreting more and more authority and more and more unaccountable power to both the tech companies who get to say, you know, we developed the mystery machine that reads your mind and whoever has the money and, you know, structural position to kind of license and deploy those systems in the real world. And that, of course, includes the military. And Meredith, you recently reviewed a book called The Age of AI and Our Human Future. The colon is placed very weirdly in the title of this book. <laughs> um, but it, it was it was written by, yeah, the age of AI colon and our human future. Uh, but it was written by quite a group of co-authors. Henry Kissinger, former Google and Alphabet CEO Eric Schmidt, and Daniel Hutton, is it Hutton Locker? Hutton Locker? Yeah. I'm going to maybe not care. Hutton Locker, uh, who's the dean of MIT's Schwarzman College of Computing. And the book is an exemplary text for the purposes of this interview for a number of reasons, but namely, as I just said, because of what it reflects about big tech's increasingly important role in the U.S. military industrial complex and really the even bigger and more lucrative role that they aspire to. We've we've touched on this a little bit, but why has AI become such a key lever, perhaps the key lever for big tech's effort to to deepen its presence in the U.S. military industrial complex, and how how in particular did AI get caught up so caught up in this new cold war with China? How how does big tech sell itself as necessary to winning this cold war, or maybe maybe even 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 a hot one? I think I can you know why AI why now you know it's. The recent history, and if you tweet about this, there's going to be like four guys who come into your mentions and are like, actually, the internet was military, so this isn't new. But like, let's be real, the recent history after the kind of commercialization of network computation in the 90s and the development of this you know, surveillance business model that you know, left it up to technology, you know, private companies to you know, kind of commercialize and, and um, own these systems. 
following that, it was around 2016 when you saw the, you know, the establishment of the Defense Innovation Unit X, and they stuck an X on the name to make it sound like tech because it was, you know, I don't know, because it's like Google X or, or whatever, you know, right next to Google. Um, and this was, you know, this, the, the folks who were very instrumental in this was Eric Schmidt and Ash Carter. Ash Carter, you know, the, the kind of was an architect of, you know, trying to bring the military industrial complex and the, you know, U.S. military closer to Silicon Valley under, you know, there were a lot of a lot of reasons that they gave for this. We want innovation. We want to be nimble. How about an agile development process that for military? Um, you know, but the real reason that tech wanted this is, you know, if you're running a shareholder-driven corporation, you need to find new ways to constantly increase growth and profits, right? You're, you're talking about like metastasis. And at some point you have taken over the host body, right? Like, where do you go? So you know, for Google, of course, and, and many of these other companies, Amazon, you know, Amazon had already been a defense contractor. There's sort of a different story there. Um, but for these, you know, through the cloud, through through cloud computing with AWS. The, yeah, yeah. Amazon was the sort of, you know, had the first start on cloud computing and effectively kind of, you know, everyone's server is someone else's computer because that's the, you know, that's the ecosystem that's been built around that. But, you know, Google wanted a piece, Microsoft had a piece, but wanted more. And, you know, how do you get a piece? Well, you have to make sure that piece is available. So there was a lot of work done to kind of position AI technologies almost as the shiny object that would lead to these massive cloud contracts. Because what is AI required? It requires huge amounts of infrastructure. You have to run this stuff and it's really expensive to run uh, and huge amounts of data. And, you know, who can do that? It's a handful of private companies. We don't have a government that has the, you know, the, the necessary ingredients to roll their own in any meaningful way. So what you're looking at when you sort of celebrate AI is you're looking at a technology that it, you know, necessarily would be provisioned by a handful of large companies and would you know come with large cloud contracts. And that's what we saw. You know, there was a you know, my labor organizing started at Google around organizing against a Department of Defense contract that Google secretly signed to build machine vision technology for the illegal drone war. And you know, everyone who it was a pretty successful organizing effort because a lot of the people inside Google do have an understanding of this technology, knew that this was a terrible idea from any given perspective, from a you know technological rationale that this stuff just doesn't work, it's not accurate, you're not getting intelligence, you're just laundering bad intel you have through a computer to you know reasons like, you know, why are we allying with the US military when most of the workforce is outside the US, et cetera, et cetera. But the Maven contract itself was fairly small, right? What was actually what they were aiming at was a much larger cloud contract. And once you once you've signed those contracts, you are a core dependency um, and you are able to kind of increase your your relevance and and you know kind of the requirements for you. So I think that's a short version. There's a lot more there. I think there's a lot of you know mysticism around this. Um, and there's a lot of lobbying that has, has staged a kind of China-US AI arms race as a rationale that is justifying pushing for bigger and bigger contracts. And why China-US? Well, there's only you know two countries that for specific historical reasons have these large tech companies that are capable of providing these technologies. There is no, you know, and there's, you know, because these companies and this particular business model function as a natural monopoly, you're not going to see others emerge. So this really is like, you know, we want 
our companies to be the surveillance and death machine hegemons. We don't want their companies to be that. Yeah. And just to pause to emphasize here in terms of Schmidt, I mean, people might know him from his past at at Google, but his role is just wildly outsized, chairing both the Pentagon's Defense Innovation Advisory Board and the National Security Commission on Artificial Intelligence, backing the this thing called the America's Frontier Fund, a purported nonprofit that's about financing tech in an effort to strengthen American economic and geopolitical dominance, chairing this think tank modeled on a Henry Kissinger Cold War era think tank called the Special Competitive Studies Project. And yeah, he's just all over the place. <laughs> yeah, he's very rich and very influential. And I, in fact, he was influential in the 90s, you know, effectively writing the framework that enabled commercialization. And he was one of the people when at Oracle who was pushing on the Clinton administration to allow, you know, self-regulation on privacy, aka to enable, you know, carte blanche on surveillance. So he he's also a an old hand at this kind of influence. Yeah. Uh, Ed, Sarah, to Thinking about like what what is going on here with this AIs being wrapped up with this this new Cold War with China, particularly you know relatedly this rapidly intensifying securitization of of the geoeconomics surrounding advanced chip technology. To what extent is this simply about American economic dominance and as Meredith was just saying, big American big tech tech companies wrapping themselves up in the idea of American dominance. So like what's good for big tech is good for America. Is this just about an attempt to impose permanent economic and technological dependency upon China? What What's going on? No, I mean, I, I was just going to say like this, this is very much like there is a reinvigoration of industrial policy framings that's happening before us right now. And it's not like the U.S.-China arms race rhetoric, I think, is one front um, on which this is unfolding. I think we're also seeing this emerge out of the EU in some complicated ways in its relationship to U.S.-based tech companies and its orientation toward regulatory interventions or not. And we're seeing this like shifting moment within the U.S., as well, where there's a tension between this, you know, tremendous amount of funding and political capital that's going towards the militarization of AI that's, you know, largely bankrolled by um, Schmidt through a variety of different entities. And then there's this like sort of outpost within the White House that is like laid down one flag that says in the executive order on competition that national monopolies are not in the U.S. interest. So there's like this moment of contradiction, but still within this like national interest industrial policy frame that's becoming more and more overt and is uh, beginning to shape like the the space for the where the trajectory for AI development actually will ultimately go. Yeah, Ed. I, I, I think... You know, one of my favorite things I, I think to point to is uh, the original surveillance capitalism, which was this like monthly review piece uh, that kind of sketches out some of the economic and geopolitical concerns the United States had coming out of the whole, uh, out of World War II. Right? You are coming out of it, you know, with really un historically unprecedented 
dominance in terms of physical security, um, also with like any possible rival powers largely being decimated or ravaged by the war, and in position to restructure the political order, economic order, financial order, so on and so forth, right? But also having a problem that, you know, you're coming out of the war effort, uh, industrial productivity and output has you know massively jumped. So how do you handle productive surplus, right? How do we plan or try to you know, put some guardrails in the system, in the economy, and the and in the political system that can consume the surplus, recycle it, figure out what kind of uh, global system we can also construct on top of it that will preserve the power and the hegemony, right? And the surveillance capitalism uh, essay kind of sketches out like three you know, kind of hits that they want to do when they're, you know, they're interested in literally getting people, you know, trying to get them to consume in specific ways and trying to do something of like an advertising revolution uh, that, you know, kind of incentivize people to consume certain things and certain trends in certain ways. And that's one way you can help contain and better plan parts of the economy. And that requires a sort of surveillance, creation of a surveillance and um, securitization apparatus that makes it easier to handle people in larger and larger uh, masses and create infrastructure and ideas and techniques for doing that. You also need to create a way for uh, the industrial production to be maybe tied to scientific innovation or knowledge production, right? And so creating an industrial warfare state is, uh, is another development that emerges, right? Where you're trying to figure out how can we keep tight links between uh, the military, uh, between industry, and between the highest, you know, the commanding heights of you know, science and uh, scientific enterprise, right? Um, how can we, and one way to do that is, of course, you know, make sure that people are making war machines, uh, but also that the, you know, advancements that you're most interested in funding or that you are making known that you have a huge interest in are ones that have to deal with national security, that have to deal with interstate competition, that have to deal with power projection, that have to deal with all the things that go along with amplifying our power and securing our position um, in organizing the world, right? And so you have those two, this you know, sort of imperial war machine that needs to be supported with organizations in the economy. You have a need to organize the domestic uh, uh, public. You also have a need to you know figure out what to do with uh, growing power and centrality of finance and figuring out ways uh, and places to soak the capital that's been accumulating uh, speculative instruments that you can be used and again just like with the war machine and just like with uh, the advertising revolution or the communications revolution you need to figure out apparatus and techniques for surveillance and securitization and so I, I feel like that surveillance capitalism argument where in need of, or, you know, coming out of World War II, capitalism needs a few guardrails. Uh, they, you know, they throw the public, you know, some, some bones, but they're also building up this really extravagant apparatus for surveillance and social control and for also monitoring finance, you know, knowledge production and, um, and, and war uh, or, or, you know, geopolitical ambitions have an even large, a growing and ever-growing need for surveillance and social control. And that uh, one of the reasons why, you know, this this obsession with using computational resources for, you know, for the military ends up emerge and for large swaths of society ends up being because 
you know, after World War II, they ended up creating a, capital, a capitalism that required huge amounts of uh, surveillance and huge amounts of anticipation of, of, of people in ways that don't bleed into the mind control narrative of surveillance capitalism by Zuboff, but do bleed into this surveillance capitalism narrative of we are trying to both preserve domination of the world and, pre and prevent, broadly speaking, economic catastrophes or crises which might derail us popular unrest, which might derail us and undermine that, uh, rival powers, and ensure that we are continuing to produce this, that, or the third, which uh, might help us better achieve either of those ends, right? And AI and, and collaborations with Silicon Valley and tech companies have, over time, you know, uh, both been in close partnership and collaboration with these with these uh, imperatives and also evolved and designed themselves to fit them better or to push them further, right? In ways that maybe even state planners and industry planners might not have anticipated before, right? Where you have companies envisioning all sorts of ways that they can, you know, collect data on people or, you know, like uh, Sarah was talking about uh, discovering secondary uses of applications and services that might be uh, very attractive because they break labor, because they uh, help, you know, uh, ensure that workers don't have autonomy or control over production and over over their labor itself. Uh, that are useful because they help maintain uh, borders, because they're used to maintain homogene homogeneity of a community, whether that's by expelling uh, migrants, whether that's by, you know, reinforcing apartheid, whether that's by you know, ensuring that you can have like faraway wars with drones assassinations, like uh, it, it plays a very, or it has ended up being able to be reconstituted and constructed in very useful ways for power projection, for imperialism, and, and for our geopolitics, I think. I'm Astrid Taylor, and you're listening to The Dig with Daniel Denver, a podcast for people who want to deeply understand the world and organize to change it. That's why you should support the show at patreon.com slash the dig. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Haymarket Books, bringing you the Socialism Conference. No one is coming to save us, but us. Grassroots movements for social change confront a critical juncture today. We need visionary politics, collective strategy, and compassionate communities now more than ever. You should attend Socialism 2023. Join thousands of activists, organizers, abolitionists, and socialists to learn from each other and from history, assess ongoing struggles, build community, and experience the energy of in-person gatherings. Featured speakers at Socialism 2023 will include Naomi Klein, Ruth Wilson Gilmore, Robin D.G. Kelly, Angela Davis, Gina Dent, Erica R. Miners, Beth E. Ritchie, Mark Lamont Hill, Aja Monet, Bettina Love, Olufemi Taiwo, Sophie Lewis, Harsha Walia, Dina Gilio Whitaker, Astra Taylor, Malcolm Harris, Kelly Hayes, Dave Zirin, and many more. I will also be there recording a live episode of The Dig. The Socialism Conference is brought to you by Haymarket Books and dozens of endorsing left-wing organizations and publications, including DSA, Jacobin, Dream Defenders, Ewok, Debt Collective, the Autonomous Tenants Union Network, N Plus One, Verso Books, and many more. Visit socialismconference.org to learn more and register today. Register by July 7th for the early bird discounted rate. 
Hope to see you there. Meredith, you, you write that one thing that big tech does to, quote, co-opt and neutralize critique is funding and elevating their weakest critics, often institutions and coalitions that focus on so-called AI ethics and frame issues of tech power and dominance as abstract governance questions that take the tech industry's current form as a given and AI's proliferation as inevitable. If you all would, let's name some names. Who Who is the controlled opposition that we're talking about here? And what what sort of critiques are these that they offer that end up serving big tech's ultimate interests? Look, asking to name names when you're grant supported and then have to be like called into the same convenings with the quote unquote community that includes these folks is a risky proposition. Happily, I'm not one of those folks right now. So um, <laughs> I would you know, point to some of the work earnest or not of folks like Tristan Harris, um, you know, and I think the formula there is pretty simple. Right. And it's actually, you know, in some sense echoes the the doomer as x risk uh structure although you know is is a bit more um nuanced but i think it's you know there's a big problem these are very very powerful you know these are mind control systems was sort of his um his uh, thesis right and this is you know again kind of bleeds into zuboff's work where you would you know you attribute these characteristics or capabilities to these systems that actually inflate their uh, their standing and reputation. Like, whoa, Facebook can control our mind. Well, um, you know, which government wouldn't want to license that API? Um, and then, you know, propose a set of remediations that look something like turn off notifications after 5 p.m. or, you know, use grayscale or, you know, what have you. And so what you have is a narrative that has sort of, you know, blown up the power of these systems in ways that are very beguiling, often sort of almost, you know, verging on the religious, and then a set of remediations that does nothing to, you know, actually address the core problem. And you see this formula, not only from, you know, the controlled opposition or from, you know, folks who are, or, or whatever we're going to call them, the weakest critics, you also see this from some of the companies, right? And, and around 2017, 2018, you had Brad Smith at Microsoft, who's their general counsel. And, you know, I would say probably the most strategic operator around this, you know, quoting Orwell in the context of facial recognition, saying like, we really need to regulate. This is very dangerous. And a lot of the media fell all over themselves, praising, you know, the awakened executive who is finally willing to grapple with the power of these systems. You know, meanwhile, what Microsoft is doing around 2020 is undermining meaningful regulation that would actually, you know, ban the use of facial recognition in Washington, right? Instead, they're lobbying for, you know, I actually forget the details, but it was, you know, significantly reduce what that regulation did, right? You know, proposing notice and consent, which is a meaningless formula for, you know, actually sort of allowing kind of democratic deliberation around whether or how these systems are used. So there's a lot of power in, in focusing on the narrative of harms and then kind of failing to actually, you know, meet those harms with any, any kind of meaningful remediation. I, you know, there's also a whole kind of auditing industry that claims, you know, it's kind of, they want to be the PricewaterhouseCoopers, but of auditing AI. So they'll just, you know, go in there, they'll be your liability shield, they'll run a couple tests, they'll say it's not biased, or it's not harmful, or, you know, make claims that, again, you can't really validate from that sort of perspective. And then that that is, you know, again, something that will enable these systems to be sort of um, 
deployed in the real world. So um, there's a lot of, of shapes to how that is done. And I think, you know, Sarah and Ed can probably add many more um, to that list or, you know, maybe not name names, but you could sort of make, you know, characterize uh, themes that run through. Characterize sorts of entities and people. <laughs> when Ed was talking earlier about the long history of surveillance capitalism and like the emergence um, out of the Cold War, one of the things that really struck me um, that I, I'm like continually remembering this history and it, it like it always like hits me over the the head, but like a lot of movements toward, you know, instantiating database computing and, you know, like increasingly bureaucratized surveillance and control under the auspices of tech companies came immediately on the tail of COINTELPRO, of, you know, Watergate. And there was this very different common sense during that period around government surveillance, around, you know, the what, what the impact of computerization um, would be on society. And so you saw much more clear agitation and, and organizing including coming from, you know, folks within the tech industry. And I'm thinking here of groups like Computer People for Peace, which started as an anti-war group, but quickly found solidarity with the Black Panthers, with, um, you know, labor organizers and precarious workers. They were originally called Computer Professionals for Peace and rebranded themselves as Computer People for Peace in recognition that there is a much broader front than sort of like, computer engineers like and, and like technical expertise is is actually a form of asserting power that needs to to be challenged and there's a line through there like from there to maven organizing too and and so finding these moments when there is space for imagining otherwise i think remains really important and we've talked a lot today about mechanisms of power and control. And I think, you know, just like for my soul, I also like need space to be talking about like liberation and, you know, and, you know, resisting in ways that open up space for actually like meaningfully creating a different kind of world. Yeah, no, I, I think, right. Yeah, you're absolutely right on that. I think that it, it is really important also to think about, you know, how do we think about things in liberatory senses and like also what's blocking us from doing it, right? Like, because the real question, right, that we or the one of the main questions that we we never get the opportunity really to do is what literally what would we do with all, like what would we do with the a system of equivalent resources but organized in much different ways along different principles, right? All of this is largely all of this is that we have largely are, are done for purposes and ends and values that we, you know, would have nothing that we want to have nothing to do with, right? I think about, you know, as this very small example of the consequence of how, like, it can, how easily it can get in the mud or get, to, you know, uh, become a problem is like, you know, when you think about uh, the gig economy, right? The gig economy is really per Gig economy presents itself as a natural extension of delivery service, taxi services, food delivery services, when in reality it's an artificially constructed platform that uses algorithms, algorithmic, that uses algorithms to try to assign uh, work in ways that's exploitative, but also keeps a huge surplus of workers, right? So, there's a, so the algorithm and the digital sheen are artifice that obscure really insidious organizations of how people are going to relate to one another. 
and also how you know resources are going to be extracted from the communities and in the search for a profit, which none of these companies have realized yet. When we are looking at whether or not we get the chance to talk about it, I think it also mirrors in the way where it's like uh, partly because of the, the failure of a, of a lot of the discourse to to really gain and look with clear eyes at how we don't have artificially intelligent systems and to kind of fall for the trap that the digital is like something really new and there's this sort of seduct- seductive, alluring, occultish, you know, power to it, right? Fall for that trap. And for 10 years, what we got was largely non-critical reporting on the gig economy outside of labor reporters that have made something that still has yet to earn a single profit, probably, or, you know, threatened to be a permanent feature of most of our cities and countries, unless there's like a massive upheaval and rooting out and a movement that manages to root out these companies, right? And reimagine what, if we are going to do online, digital, you know, delivery or logistical systems, what would they look like outside of what these vultures and parasites have tried to establish, right? And 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 similarly, right? The we get robbed of like that sort of desire for having discussions about what liber, liberation or liberatory you know pursuits might look like if we imagine them, because because we've been dealing with like for a decade or so people who similarly kind of buy into the histories presented by these firms. The, the rhetoric presented by these firms, the fear-mongering presented by these firms and their marketing strategies as they tried to wheel themselves into existence, into being like permanent parts of, of the landscape that we can't do anything about, right? Um, and I feel like you know, one fear I definitely almost always have is that, well, it's, it's not that we won't be able to, but that uh, root them out because I do think, and like that's part part of you know that's why we're all here also, right? Because we do believe that we can get them out and figure out an alternative way to organize uh, computational resources and figure out you know what kind of society we want to be built on top of that or integrated or intermediated by something like that. But that you know, as these things continue and as they largely are successful in restructuring or watering down. Uh, and lobbying in ways where the walls gets oriented around their demands and their desires and their business models, right? That we are going to be permanently tainted, poisoned by their visions and, and never really get to explore, you know, what it could mean for us if we decide, if we, you know, took control of and owned, you know, in whatever form that might look like all of the infrastructure that they currently use to restructure our lives, to make them more transparent and more legible and more profitable for them and more exploitative and extractable for them and calculable, right? And and I hope that doesn't come to pass, right? I hope they don't, the taint is not there forever. The hyperbolic boosterism and, and also the doomerism around AI, it often invokes this idea that it's a development akin to the discovery of steam power or or even fire. Kissinger said, quote, I think the technology companies have led the way into a new period of human consciousness, like what, quote, the Enlightenment generations did when they moved from religion to reason. And and I have no clue what, what Kissinger is drawing on here with this sort of new age eschatological language, but, but where does AI fit into this almost 
religious belief in parts of the tech world that we're approaching the so-called singularity oh, <laughs> a moment when, when human and machine <laughs> i'm sorry we have to talk about it this, this moment when human and machine intelligence will will essentially merge what what's up with that the perspective of the singularity is that secretly we all want to be computers one and that we are going to inevitably do that because of a bunch of you know, locked in physical processes and development patterns, right? But there's been a lot of really interesting work in history done excavating it that I think more properly situated as a history of um, of mystical, of, of Christian mysticism uh, seeping in and structuring background assumptions about how we can, re, you know, create reality, right? Or how we can re remake our bodies, right? There's um. I'm blanking on her name, but she's written a really great essay and book that also has a few chapters on this subject. And the singularitarians there, she kind of talks about how this idea, you know, like take the idea of the singularity, right? This idea that you know starts to gain you know real traction thanks to Ray Kurzweil, who's director of engineering at Google's insistence on spreading this idea as far as possible, and what he. Uh, you know, does is he saying in the singularity we'll be, no longer be able to predict the, how fast the rate of development for uh, the advancements of computational software or you know, technology will be because we'll fit uh, so many transistors onto you know these wafers and because we'll have so much computational power and we'll be able to replicate human intelligence and then it will modify itself and then we'll lift off right. But this is just like a reformulation of uh, this uh, Jesuit priest Pierre uh, uh, de uh, Teilhard de Chardin. I wrote this book called Omega Point, and he had this, in, you know, really mystical conception of God, where he's like, okay, well, you know, evolution. We can reconcile evolution with believing that God made the universe, because as humanity evolves and as our life evolves and our world evolves, we will create a network that encompasses all machines and minds, and that will give birth to something that will eventually be capable of bringing God into the universe. And at that omega point, God will exist. And God will exist and transcend space and time. Go back in time, make the universe causal uh, contradiction avoided. Evolution uh, is allowed to happen, right? So it's a reformulation of that. Ideas about transhumanism, about the about recreating our bodies, modifying them, transcending the limits of our humanity, reconfigurations of old Christian debates about what will happen when you get resurrected and what what, what your body will look like, what your mind will be like. Um, a lot of these debates, a lot of these anxieties, a lot of these questions are repainted in a secular light, but they are tracing back to these older Christian ideas. And the concern there that uh, singular, you know, singularitarians will insist that's not the case, it is the case, but the real concern there is that then you start getting into the basis for kind of maniacal utilitarian logic, right? If, this, if there's this idea that, one, you know, God's birth is inevitable, or that nirvana is, is possible, but you have to go along with a specific path of development to reach it, then that in one way or another justifies, not only justifies you know, whatever you want to do to reach that path, but then narrows you into you know, adhering to that uh, path and saying prioritizing resources to help people in the here and now, right? To build certain types or resist to build certain types of societies in the here and now. It doesn't really matter because we're talking about reviving and bringing back to life every human who's ever lived and creating a utopia for every human who ever will live far flung into the future, right? So, this, so I think the singular 
singularity, you know, is thought of as like this kind of innocent, cool idea where, oh, like, wouldn't it be nice for us to transcend the limits of mortality? But it's like this weird mysticism that allows for really horrid utilitarian logic to enter that, you know, that justifies increasingly nasty, uh, apathetic, or ranging from apathetic to, you know, nasty and exterministic value judgments about where, what type of society and world we should build or tolerate. Um, in the name of giving birth to God and making sure all of us get to sing in harmony forever at his feet. And when we're talking, when you say utilitarian logic, are we talking about effective altruism? I think the, the effective altruists come out of that strain of logic, right? They're the, they go a little bit further because they're really interested in formalizing this logic system, right? And, and, and trying to figure out what you should do in X situation and Y situation, what type of job you should get, how much you should donate, like what types of uh, institutions, foundations, organizations are worth working with, not working with, what type of life you should personally live and what type of life you should, you know, try to push others to live. Like there, I think they're very interested in formalizing and articulating very clearly that logic, but that it nonetheless seeps and permeates at the background of a lot of this mysticism that has gone from occult to secular. I've seen this logic emerge as marginal. It's been around, right? But it was much more marginal and it's certainly gotten a boost in the last five or so years. I don't have a great take on why. I do think there's a real slippery slope, so to speak, when you start treating people and our world like quantifiable commodities. And it seems like there is a through line between sort of that perspective on our one magical life and our wild planet and the contorted rationalizing that leads you to think you can ignore any issue in the presence based on a computationally guaranteed future in which those issues will be somehow remediated by a, you know, kind of a, a spiritual event happening when uh when all people who were harmed now come back to life or or what have you right it gets it gets very odd very quickly and i you know i do think about like you know jpl and anton levey like there seems to be kind of this you know people who are very invested in understanding the world computationally and like weird ass beliefs that somehow sort of are are like catnip for, for that type. And, you know, again, this isn't my lane. I've just you know been around these dudes for about two decades and I, uh, and that's what I got. Yeah. Yeah. What, 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 why do the tight, just more like stepping back from the singularity, but certainly including it, why, why do the Titans of Silicon Valley believe such weird, insane and dangerous things? What, what is it about being situated in the commanding heights of the tech economy that brings them into such close contact with the outer reaches, beyond the outer reaches of acceptable ideas. <laughs> um, I mean, maybe it's just the the heights, right? Maybe not just the tech economy. And right. again, I'm I'm out on a limb here outside of my, you know, disciplinary moorings, but in a sense, what I saw when I, you know, I joined Google in 2006, right? There's like somewhere around like 3,000 workers at Google total. You know, Yahoo is bigger than Google. So, you know, I, I saw this sort of crescendo as Google grow and as grew and as the tech industry metastasized and took on such an outside role in our, our world. And so you have a bunch of folks who are, you know, like at least at that time, there were a lot of just well-meaning nerds. Right. And I was a book nerd, but I hung out with the math nerds a lot. And, you know, there's a sort of type, right. They're just really into it. They point that laser of attention at anything and they got to go really deep. And I like those folks. 
And a lot of them were there and like just tickle pink because they got rich by doing something that was naturally interesting to them anyway. And, you know, a lot of folks just stepped in and got super lucky, right? Like you were pre IPO and then you're set for life. And how do you narrate that, right? How do you reverse engineer a history that makes you deserving of what you got in a world that is sort of, you know, fraying in many ways around you? And, you know, particularly how do you do that when, as you move through life, you're going to be surrounded like willingly or not, unless you're real, real careful with a lot of people who are, you know, a lot of simps, a lot of suck ups, a lot of people who are going to say yes, yes, yes. And sort of then, you know, I think it's very easy to do, you know, what I've called like expert drift, right? You studied, you know, electrical engineering and mechanical engineering, and then you, you know, learn network engineering and built some of like Google's internal tooling but suddenly you are being asked to expound on issues like, you know, medicine or education or, you know, the future of industrial policy. And, you know, people aren't looking at you as askance when you offer like an uninformed take. And I think there is a feedback loop that happens somewhere in that nexus that makes people very susceptible to you know, wild ass heterodox stuff, because, you know, if I'm an intelligent person, something I think is intelligence, er ergo, it must be, you know, correct. And I also think power corrupts your brain. I think if you're, if you do enough work to rationalize that, you just lose your ability to analyze with any integrity. And I've seen people get, um, I don't like using ableist terms, but like way, way, way less intellectually capable as, you know, in proportion to the amount of power that they have accrued. Sarah, Ed? Yeah, I mean, where I keep going with this is like, there is this constant refrain that continually sort of emerges across the history of the tech industry. And you can trace this back to like, William Shockley, who was, you know, involved in the invention of the transistor. Um, This like continual flirtation with, far right ideologies and with like increasingly authoritarian modes of control. That history, I think, is rarely brought to the surface in, you know, cultural histories of tech, but it's always there under the surface. And here I'm thinking about like Fred Turner's work in From Counterculture to Cyberculture, Stephanie Schultz's work on, you know, looking at the his, the cultural history of cyberspace and how it relates to corporate control and state level control. And then there's this like deep vein that like continually re- resurfaces in Shockley, in McCarthy, who was really interested in ideas about population control. And, and sorry, I didn't say Shockley's sort of like obsession was was very explicit eugenics. And he was funded by the Pioneer Fund, which was a, a fund that was established to support eugenics work. And then you can look at someone like Peter Thiel, who you know expressly advocates far-right ideologies and monarchism. Like it's, there, there is a, a persistent vein there that I think is in need of further exploration. I think that there's a connecting line between some of the things that Mayor was just talking about and the way that you sort of rationalize the work um, and if technologies are frequently used as a as a mechanism for control in some larger ideological frame that makes that control make sense. Ed? Yeah, no, I, I, I think, you know, like, like you're actually right, you know, a lot of those ideas are really important, right? Because there is a very long history 
to earliest days of Silicon Valley. And I think also, you know, the, part of it is connected to the ways in which like sectors that are at the frontier and at the top of the American economy are constructed and who gets to rise to the top of them and what things need to happen to rise to the top of them. Part of it is also like where it's situated, right? You know, Silicon Valley, California, these are projects that are steeped in long histories of eugenics, long histories of racism, long histories of imperialism, long histories of extraction, right? Two of uh, my favorite books on, on, on really like just California itself there's Imperial uh, San Francisco, which is a book by uh, Greg Burchin that kind of talks about um, the impact that mining had in, in, in kind of creating the state and, and tracing the fortunes that were created, information empires that were created, also to incentivize people to keep coming back, uh, the ways in which the land was literally exhausted and, and, and devastated, and the power and wealth that these people leveraged to wage war elsewhere to replenish the ecology with you know, with literal ecological loot, whether it was like stealing trees from the Philippines to, you know, reforest the area around Lake Tahoe, right? Or, you know, rerouting other states' waterways or dispossessing, stealing, and you know, the land from indigenous communities. As well as, you know, as Palo Alto's uh, history kind of sketches out, like the fact that a lot of these people are just racist motherfuckers, like really weird racist nerds you know, really believed that, like, for example, the Palo Alto system from which it gets its name, right, really believed that, look, children should be, like, trained and educated in ways that ensure, like, you're hitting these benchmarks. You're getting these resources to ensure you hit these benchmarks. You're able to reproduce this system so that you can ensure that other people do that. Look, stepping back and seeing, like, that system was adopted from a horse breeding farm and, like, the largest horse breeding farm that innovated a lot of methods of uh, breeding where they brought them on, uh, they brought those methods to Stanford. They brought eugenicists to Stanford, and then they're trying to, you know, create, you know, Ubermensch engineers who are going to go forth and uh, revolutionize and disrupt industries, uh, whether that's mining itself or whether that's, you know, the uh, redesign of the cities or whether that's a warfare or you know whatever you can apply their intellectual uh, spirit to, right? So I think there's a there's a really long history of the eugenics of this obsession with productivity of uh, this desire and drive to reduce humans to things lesser than they are so that they're easier to categorize, control, uh, profit from, shape, um, and design, and that this feeds and slots really nicely into uh, the shape and form of the industry as it is today where, you know, like the primary concern is what do we do with these data-centric models? Well, we can give them to oil companies. We can give them to you know, militaries. We can give them to states and governments. We can give them to places that are in need of resources in their, uh, as they're trying to you know, brutalize, terrorize, surveil, and extract from more of the world, right? So there's never been really a, a period or a change where... The people who are rising to the top, the ideas or the methods that are dominant are not going to be ones that are amicable or amenable with people who believe there are some groups of people that are lesser than other people and that they're better than them, that there are groups of people who need to be in charge. There are groups of people who need to be designing and be left alone to design these things, either for because they're just like that, you know, brazenly concerned with profit or because they truly believe for one reason or another, largely the years of damage this work has done to their minds, right, uh, or their ability to reason about these things that 
those with the power and those who got there are the only ones who really understand these things work, right? I mean, like Eric Schmidt is probably like the loudest modern uh, proponent of that, insisting that no one other than engineers, no one other than the computer scientists should ever be allowed to make these decisions. And coincidentally, I also happen to be like running so many of the organizations which might be making some of the rules for this. And I would like that to be the framework that we continue to push forward, right? So I feel like that, you know, it, it really boils down to a combination of those things that have only gotten worse, right? As the world continues to fray, like Meredith was talking about, you know, as things get worse, the ecology gets worse, you know, prospects for human survival at the hands of the, the civilizations that dominate it get worse. You know, these people are going to be looting more and hoarding more on the sinking ship and trying to take more out of the, the gaping hole with them instead of like doing anything really to help fix it. Because they're the saboteurs, you know, at the end of the day. For a long, long time now, there have been frequent warnings that automation will destroy, say, half of all jobs in as little as two decades' time. And just recently, maybe in the last two weeks, McKinsey released a report saying that AI will contribute as much as $4.4 trillion to the global economy annually by automating 60 to 70 percent of workers' labor time. But the this this long, recurrently predicted automation apocalypse, as as past dig guest Aaron Beninov writes, just never comes. And there are plenty of reasons, he writes, to think that it won't come this time either. Earlier, we talked about some of the incentives for big tech to oversell AI. Why Why do they hype automation like this? And and do you think that the, this hype around automation can serve to not only juice the juice present-day investments in AI, but also obscure the actual threats posed to workers by, by AI and by big tech in general? I mean, McKinsey, famously good at predicting correctly. <laughs> like a Harvard grad <laughs> Predict- instead ordering Uber Eats, Googling, what is the economy? <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> I think the story is as important as the mechanism, right? And I, you know, I know Ed and you know Sarah have done a lot of work on you know the the gig economy or or you know the sort of computationally mediated degradation of uh, labor. Um, but I think what happened there is a real good object lesson. You know, it wasn't you know what was when Uber came on the scene. You know, it was presented as a tech company. And, you know, Vina Duval and others have written really beautifully about this, but it was, you know, it was, you know, this is a tech company that's going to innovate, you know, taxi work, right? And it's going to do so in a way that, you know, has found the like, you know, formula for mutual benefit It's more flexible, you know, you make more, you're sort of disrupting a sclerotic industry with medallion corruption, et cetera. And that really focused everyone's attention on sort of technological affordances, right? Like, whoa, this is new. What was actually happening? Like what allowed them to persist and and hollow out the labor protections and sort of you know domain of of you know delivery and taxi work? It was you know, labor arbitrage, you know, regulatory arbitrage, and the ability to float on venture capital without producing profits for long enough that you kneecap those industries, right? So, you know, in that scenario, there's sort of a magpie's bauble that is distracting us, you know, via 
compelling, you know, mythologized stories about innovation and computational technology from what's really going on, which is, you know, literally undermining labor law. They are violating labor law. They are routing around regulation, you know, to the point of defrauding regulators. And they're being funded to do so on the premise that they can sustain that long enough to capsize their competition and you know, take a, you know, if not a monopoly position, at least a dominant position, you know, that has in the meantime, degraded, you know, work and the lives of of the workers who formerly had a more stable source of income and you know a more pleasant livelihoods. Um, so I think that is you know a lot of times what you're looking at is a story that serves as an incredible pretext for degrading labor. And I think that the Writers Guild of America strike is another one where you have folks who are being faced with inflated. AI hype and mythology, right? Like GPT can take your jobs, can do your creative labor, can you know completely eliminate you all as creative workers. You know, we know that's not true. GPT is a sort, you know, a, technically speaking, a bullshit engine. It doesn't produce new material. It is not well suited for you know creative creative work. And yet that story is powerful enough that they are on strike facing down studios who would love to do, you know, the same Uber move, which is introduce GPT as, you know, under the pretext that it is capable of doing their jobs. It doesn't matter that it is or not. Let's follow this scenario forward. Fire all the writers who have health insurance benefits, you know, stability are affiliated with the union, then, you know, like put up you know, writerly the app where they have to low bid each other every day on some gig economy platform to come back in under the title of an AI editor with no stability, no long-term future, no benefits, et cetera, et cetera. So that's the dynamic that I see here that has very, very little to do with the actual capabilities of the systems that are you know, tasked to automate and a lot more to do with the who gets to tell the story about those systems you know, where are we looking when we look at the issues of you know, workplace automation? Are we looking and listening to workers? Are we looking and listening at you know marketing copy written by tech executives, or are we you know sort of buying the line that you know studios or or you know bosses bosses sell us? Yeah, I mean, it, 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 you know, Aaron's work is really it's so great here, right? Aaron has um, written also about ChatGPT, which I think you know dovetails really nicely with. Remember this point, right, where, you know, in 20, 2010, 2013, people were publishing these studies saying, hey, within a decade, maybe even two decades, at least half of all our jobs are going to be gone. They're going to be automated away because they're rather, they're you know, made up of these ag- you know, disaggregated tasks or tasks that can be disaggregated and assigned to robots or to automated systems. And... The time has gone on. Few, if any, of these jobs have been automated away. A lot of the firms that offered these um, products and services that were supposed to get rid of the jobs have collapsed and crumbled or have hobbled along saying uh, that they're going to need more money to, to investigate even narrow applications or finding a second wind with the more recent resurgent hype cycle for artificial intelligence that's happening right now, right? And that when you actually dig into it and, and you see that, you know, a lot of work, a lot of uh, work is not able to be automated and, you know, either because it's a lot more complex or because the technology that people are, you know, you know future casting and wish casting as, autom- as um, replacing them is nowhere near uh, advanced enough to do any of that, right? 
still this is only an inconvenient you know fact for people who are pushing the automation technologies right because like Meredith was talking about right this is still going to be a strategy that will be used right because it's under the cover of an inevitable march that we can uh, institute more controlling workplaces and degrade labor conditions and save on labor costs by smashing labor and workers right and by ensuring that we have harder boundaries and higher walls between the person doing their work and their ability to control it and they're also the ability to use any control of that work to have any effect on what the corporation itself is doing right and i think that what you'll see you know in the coming years is attempts to constantly rescramble and say this or that or the third is going to be automated away and when you see these massive layoffs there you know part of this is also similar to how venture capitalists try to make uh, hype cycles real by just throwing money at it and inflating the valuations and hoping more comes. The layoffs might serve a similar function or attempts at layoffs may serve a similar function. We're saying, well, we're going to get rid of these jobs. We're going to restructure our labor around automating or um, among uh, products that are supposedly automating away the labor. But then, you know, as for example, Slack just did, trying to rehire these workers in a new scheme or a new structure of labor where what they're doing is something that is either their own, their old job or a more wasteful, complicated version of it where they are, you know, being involved in moderating and watching and ensuring that the supposedly automated system that was able to replace them uh, doesn't go off the rails, right? The, the, these attempts to make it real are much more important than actually figuring out what way they could be used to augment and amplify and make uh, human labor better, right? Because the concern isn't any of that, you know? That's all the bullshit, right? The real concern is how do we generate more profits in one way or another, and how do we preserve power control and autonomy, right? How do we preserve this absolutist structure? How do we crush workers and ensure that they don't have autonomy? How do we ensure that things go more along our lines than not? Uh, and I think that's that's really like the, what's going to be the real story that happens because they'll. I feel like more workplaces as they'll try to do it, they'll roll out this AI, they won't get the results, right? Like the example that Meredith used with the workers, uh, with the writers. I mean, what's the predictable consequence going to be, right? They'll just spill if they the studios win and they're able to use AI, uh, what they're calling AI for writing these things and for pitting workers together and degrading their quality. The working conditions also de uh, decline the quality of the content. And there's a big question if, like, you can continue to do that um, and still expect audiences and these platforms to persist, right? They're already scraping the barrel, right? Streaming has not, there's not been a clear path to profitability, right? Or to the explosive profits that these people anticipated for streaming. And this is after they've done and successfully eroded away more and more of the pre-existing system that preserved good conditions that were high labor costs for these studios trying to squeeze out more money uh, and also provided better, you know, and helped ensure better content, right? So what's going to happen if you continue to try to automate it away? You might make more money in the short term, maybe by having to pay the writers less um, and having to provide less for them, but you might lose more in the long term by providing shit and garbage, which no one wants to consume anymore, um, and which then undermines the logic for the entire system. Uh, so I don't know. I feel like, well, 
I feel like, you know, if you were a good capitalist and you would step back and look at it and say, this is a delicate tightrope, let's not go down this line, but, you know, they're not. So, <laughs> so this is what we get. Sarah? I mean, I think it is worth talking about what some of the, like, changes that some of the changes that have unfolded in terms of the nature of working conditions and the relationship between workers and employers to like, there's, you know, the, you know, significant increase in information asymmetries between workers and employers that is attributable to the deployment of workplace surveillance and um, algorithmic management techniques that it's much harder to document the harms because of the individualization and the atomization of work. So let's say if you're discriminated against, it can be harder to identify the patterns and the other people who are experiencing the same kind of discrimination if it's occurring over some sort of like platform-based model. There's also, I think, a real uptick in the blurring of boundaries between, you know, working life and home life. You know, this is happening at the level of devices. If you have to download an app on your phone for work, does that then, you know, mean that your employer can extend their reach onto your personal device through surveillance? I think like these these are questions that I think we need to be asking and and, you know, paying particular attention to because they significantly shape the power relationships between workers and employers. And if we're going to retain any space for building worker power, for being able to effectively organize, it's important to also preserve space where you're not going to be surveilled by your boss um, and where you have, you know, a, a sense of who um, who you're organizing against. It's not sort of like this dispersed app-based market but you know you you i don't know there's there's a lot of like complicated elements that are introduced through technology that need to be part of the discussion i mean one other thing like i i like always want to talk about this company argyle which advertises itself as like the data broker for like workers data so they just have these like massive data sets that have been collected on workers that are available for sale um and you know how how does that then get used out in the world you know vina dubal has written about you know the introduction of al algorithmic wage management and the personalization of a wage to what is the lowest that they think that they can pay you and get away with there, there's there's a lot to mine i think beyond the basic questions of um you know will will jobs be automated away and how will work be devalued that also gets at, you know, how are working conditions being changed in ways that diminish workers' autonomy and ability to organize and, and the need to really agitate against that. I can say there would be no labor organizing at Google if we didn't have Signal, like full stop. And I think that, that brings us to a point that's maybe obvious, but worth stressing like AI technologies when deployed are surveillance technologies. So we can't cleave the privacy discourse and the concern over, you know, surveillance and information asymmetries that constitute power asymmetries from the AI discourse. You know, it doesn't matter whether you're collecting information about where 
I am located in the world because, you know, I'm pinging a cell tower that you're able to triangulate to my location with some degree of accuracy. Or if you are inferring where I am in the world based on a predictive model that has scraped sort of other metadata and made a, you know, educated guess whether right or wrong around where I am. So, you know, whether or not the data produced about me, my colleagues, you know, myself as a type of person, it, you know, comes through a predictive model and is sort of inference, or whether that data is collected in ways that we are more comfortable describing as surveillance, you know, like my, my library records or, you know, scan my mail. At the end of the day, that data becomes data about me that constitutes a power asymmetry. And, you know, again, the authority and information is in the hands of, you know, those who already have power. So this is employers or educators or police and generally deployed in their interests. And, you know, the interests of employers are extracting as much as possible from workers. And would be remiss if we didn't also note that like so much of what we know about the capabilities of AI and so much of the meaningful contestation of, you know, the you know stopping AI systems that would harm people from going out in the world is the product of worker-led organizing. So there is a sort of recursive function here where we need to preserve space for worker-led organizing to be able to um, continue without AI-driven mechanisms of control and also much of what we know um, and are able to contest about the deployments of AI is the product of that very same labor organizing. Speaking of, of workers, aside from the already very rich people like Sam Altman and Eric Schmidt getting even richer, there is indeed a globally distributed labor force of people working often for very low wages who make these giant profits possible. Who, Who is the working class that's making these large language models that are the that are the basis of so-called AI technology. What what's the nature of the work? What what does it entail? And Sarah, referring back to your last comment, what have we seen promising signs of labor organization amongst that growing workforce? Yeah, I mean, we we have the the moderators who were responsible for labeling the training data that was used to build ChatGPT and GPT four. Um, formed the African Content Moderators Union, I think, a, a month or two ago. So there is, I think, quite promising um, labor activity. There was also a, a really important precedent um, in the Amsterdam Court of Appeals recently where Uber and Lyft drivers brought a case under the GDPR um, and were successfully able to you know, get the court ruling that the GDPR applies to Uber and Lyft's use of automated firing technologies, those are not compliant with the GDPR, and that um, the GDPR also applies to their use of algorithmic wage um, setting technologies. Um, so there's there's been a number of different fronts um, where organizing by you know, the, the so-called working class around AI has, has had real wins, um, and I think they're, they're important fronts to, to look to. Um, I realize I answered the last question and didn't get into like what it what is the nature of of this work. I don't know if if Mara Ed want to take it. I'm, I'm happy to keep talking. But the intelligence that is attributed to the machine is people. Yeah. Spoiler. Yeah. Uh, and those people, in you know, classic fashion, are very frequently low paid workers in the majority world 
who are employed to affix labels to images, to catalog text snippets, or to otherwise organize the data that informs AI models into legible snippets that then allow the AI model to be met, you know, to meet new data, a new prompt or a new query, and statistically predict what an answer might be based on the labels, based on the categories, based on the intelligence that has been imparted by these workers. So it's workers all the way down, and there is a, you know, largely invisibilized, although many people have been working to draw attention to this workforce. There's a, a large workforce that needs to, you know, not only label training data and sort of, you know, catalog it in a way that can be, you know, quote unquote, absorbed by these systems, but also needs to continually nudge and prompt and constrain these systems so that they can fit into the norms of you know, polite liberal discourse, right? You can't be licensing a system to a large corporation that is terribly prone at spitting out hate speech. And we know, you know, these systems are trained on data that is collected from the internet, on you know, generally English language data, on, you know, it's pretty gnarly, right? And without that training, without that kind of culling and disciplinary function that these workers provide, these systems would not be marketable or profitable. And that's a forever job in many cases. So it's, you know, it's people, it's people, it's labor, it's dead labor. You know, it's it's probably not a surprise to a lot of this audience, but that's, you know, that it, the sleight of hand at the core of this cont contestation of intelligence is that, you know, ultimately the ground truth that informs these models on, you know, how to interpret you know the prompts and 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 you know data they are given is provided by this huge and unheralded workforce. Ed, and 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 that division of labor is like a. You know that that's that is because the industry is so fervently dedicated to building out this massive Chinese room, right? This massive sort of like black box where it goes in, it comes out, it, it appears as if it understands or simulates understanding, but in reality it doesn't because there is no you know, actual interiority there, requires that, okay, well, if we believe that what you need to do is to feed it as much information as possible, as much data as possible, build increasingly larger and larger data sets so it can delete larger and larger statistical inferences about reality um, and models that simulate this or that part of cognition and eventually will make a mind, right? Well, you can't do that here because everyone, the labor is too expensive and the politics are complicated and other competitors might have an easier time replicating the model and then push you out so you lose it, right? So you got to take it elsewhere, right? And this is the model for so much the valley as well, right? So much of this extract of this logic where not only do we take the resources, the raw materials as cheaply as possible, but the labor whenever it's possible is used, right? I mean, the labor and building a lot of the technical implements that require then the, you know, the intelligence to be cloaked and made into ghost work, right? Also have to rely on, you know, uh, basically uh, paying workers as little as possible. And in some instances, just, you know, having slavery, right? And, and the consequences being, well, you know, one kind of like, you know, tricking the public into thinking, hey, like we've got um, 
this intelligence, but the artifice is actually separating the person from it and, pre and pre uh, presenting the machine as the intelligent thing. But two, also um, forcing these people into these horrible conditions where, you know, sometimes they're reviewing, doing content moderation on images that are abhorrent. Um, or they're also doing just like, you know, one, you know, such horrible, you know, unthinking, numbing task, right? Tasks that make you think of like Adam Smith's critique of a division of labor talking about how like you know human beings should not be like capitalism one way to look at capitalism uh, and and its disregard for humans is to look at how one of the best ways right to produce productivity and profits is to organize people into such demeaning tasks where they're not really thinking through something and where they're totally divorced from whatever it is they're creating or contributing to when a core drive of human beings is creation in some measure, some connection to whatever the product of your labor is, right? Um, and so on, so on like a multitude of levels, right? This is also something that empowers and, and reinforces all the problematic values and essence of, um, of the valley, right? You know, because it's happening on this area with using data and the intelligence of workers. It's also happening in other places with, um, with, um, with raw materials and with assembling of products as well. And in both instances, you know, if something happens to the worker, it's, it's obscured as much as possible. It doesn't really matter because the real thing that matters is transmuting this human being into a machine so that you can convince other human beings to give you or support your efforts to, you know, clear out more space, get more autonomy, more control over the rest of the process. So you can get more resources to try to uh, build more of these machines and convince more people that they're actually intelligent or that they're actually, they actually should you know, acquiesce and let more and more of daily life be organized by them and uh, others that they're interested in working with, right? You know, if, if they could have their way, I'm sure they would try to replicate this everywhere, but they're, you know, they're not going to be able to, of course. And so that's why most of these efforts get relegated to or limited to the global South. This brings us to the inevitable what is to be done question. How should government deal with AI? And maybe more importantly, given the state of things and the state of, you know, the left vis-a-vis -vis the, the state, what demands should our unions, our movements, our organizations be making around it? Should some iterations of it simply be banned? Should others be regulated? Should antitrust deal with it? Should it be socialized? Whatever that would mean. What is or what are the solutions? Given that AI is this messy shibboleth deployed as a marketing term, I think there are two ways to answer that question. The first is simply that the people who are most at risk of harm from AI, the workers, the students, the people who are in cages, the, you know, criminalized folks should have the most say over whether it's used or whether these data-centric predictive technologies that are, you know, predicated on one or another type of centralized control and perspective should be deployed in any arena. And then if so, how, right? And we don't, we don't have anything near that right now, but one of the reasons the WGA strike is so heartening to me is I, you know, that is the texture of those demands and it is the front lines in my view of the regulatory fight around AI. And it, it's a regulatory fight that has the benefit of not having swarms of open AI lobbyists, you know, constantly in the room, sort of directing the you know, perspectives of, of the regulators. Um, I think the, other answer there, you know, that is an answer that sort of takes into account the variegated deployment environments and the fact that these technologies are, you know, marketed and applied in such vastly different contexts that it's it's very hard to have, you know, 
a single answer that is specific to you know the technology and needs to really take into account the risks and and context i think there is also just sort of the simple answer of you know recognize that ai is not a product of novel innovation in the current moment it is the product of concentrated monopoly power and so you attack that concentrated power and i know that sarah and amba cock and their colleagues at ai now have thought a lot about what is a what is an evidence-based and you know, practical regulatory agenda that looks particularly at this concentration of power at the tools available or you know potentially available to tackle it and how would we use those to um, to reduce that power to redistribute that power and to introduce some modicum of democratic decision making into the you know questions around whether technology and if so how Sarah. I want to co-sign Mayor's emphasis on people having the scope for determination around the way that AI is being used um, to affect their lives. I think that that's something that's been broadly missing from discussions around AI that impute um, a sense of inevitability or that there is sort of this arms race. And if we don't do it, then someone else will do it around this technology. I think that needs to be at the forefront. Looking to the policy space, I think bringing an analysis of the structural infrastructural power of big tech firms um, also needs to be front and center. You know, the reason why I think we at AI Now have focused often on antitrust or competition interventions is because that is a mechanism that acknowledges the harmful effects of concentrated economic power um, and offers some leverage points that get at the business model, at the reasons for um, structural dominance and, and modes for dismantling it. And so, you know, that's that's one locus. Um, but broadly, taking on, you know, bright line measures that curb the most harmful uses that may be in the form of, you know, banning certain categories of technology writ large. We're already seeing that, by the way, in the EU AI Act, you know, there are bans on predictive policing, bans on emotion recognition in the um, parliament version of the AI Act draft. We'll see if it makes it into the, the final version, but we're already there. And I think, you know, getting out of you know, the frame that sort of places the the work of seeking accountability on the, the broader public um, and put more of the burden on the companies that are benefiting from and, you know, gaining profit from these technologies. Um, I think frameworks that sort of like attend to those power dimensions, I think, are um, also really key here. You know, to that what is to be done question, right? There, I think there are two large things, right? There's, the, of course, the, the policy stuff. That like, what do we do in the immediacy and what do we do in a larger sense? And I want to start with that because I feel like there is like a huge question where a lot of the discussions, debates, thoughts about what AI should or shouldn't look like still in one way are kind of accepting the terrain of everything else. We're not, we don't seem to be too interested in doing anything other than how do we use AI to plug into a better operation of states, of markets and all the configurations and arrangements that uh, exist right now instead of thinking about how you know 
another way to put it, what do we want our technology to do? Do we want our technology to just optimize and make more efficient human relations and the, and the type of institutions we have today? Or do we want to use it as part of the creative process and potential we all have to develop new things, right? And to maybe break the hold of other things that exist right now, uh, whether it be markets, whether it be states, whether it be you know, the geopolitics that dominate the world, or whether it be, you know, this, that, or the third, right? Do we want to figure out ways to, of collaboration that are outside of markets, that are outside of startups, that are outside of, uh, you know, narrow vehicles that exist now aligned with capitalist interests, right? Which is not to say AI will institute digital socialism, but to a larger point, most of our questions and debates and thoughts about technology because of how thoroughly it's dominated by capitalists are really only concerned with things on their terms, right? And so what is to be done is like a constant contesting of this idea that when you're using or thinking about automated systems, it should only be used to make sure you eke out 5% more revenue, profits, gains, used to corral workers, used to amplify killing machines, um, as opposed to just like experiments with with um, what they can and can't be used for. But we can't do that, to return to the policy side, we can't do that as long as it is thoroughly dominated by like warmongers and military contractors and surveillance firms and all the sort of parasites that left to their own devices would make a nightmare tech that would doom the rest of us to a life you know, where, we gen where we're just generating as much profit for them as po possible, right? And I think Meredith and Sarah outlined a lot of really key policy interventions, right? Because it boils down to, we got to ban a lot of this shit. We got to take control and seize control of a lot of the infrastructure and contest their control of it. We have to lock them out of ever getting back into these things also. And we have to, whenever possible, reduce the size of markets so we can drown them or destroy them completely as part of this larger attempt to shift control of computational infrastructure and resources from private to public control, because it's only once we free it from these private demands and interests that we can really start to experiment with literally everything else that we should have been experimenting with from the, from the start of this. Meredith Whitaker, Ed Angueso, and Sarah West, thank you all very much. Thank you so much. It's been a delight. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, it was really great. That was Meredith Whitaker, Ed Angueso, and Sarah West. Meredith Whitaker is a scholar and longtime tech worker whose work examines the political economy and social implications of computational technology and the industry that controls it. Edward Angueso Jr. is a freelance writer based in Brooklyn who covers labor, finance, and technology. He's the co-host of This Machine Kills, a podcast about the political economy of technological innovation. Sarah Myers-West is the managing director of the AI Now Institute and the author of the forthcoming book, Tracing Code, which examines the origins of commercial surveillance. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, after noting that the working population produces both the accumulation of capital and the means by which it has made itself relatively superfluous, and it does this to an extent which is always increasing. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We're posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis. Our associate producer is Jackson Roach. We are recorded at WBRU in Providence. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinator 
directors are Tammuz Frankel and Sylvia Atwood. Our senior advisors are Thea Rio Francos and Ben Maybe. A huge thanks to Ben Tarnoff and Moira Weigel for helping me prep this interview. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at thedigradio and find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe to this podcast. If it's on iTunes, also rate and review us. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. But what really does that is you telling other people to check out the pod. Please make propaganda for us and do find us at patreon.com and make a monthly contribution to help keep this operation up and running strong. Even a few bucks a month is huge.